Um, this week, we're going to be continuing um, on a series of talks um, from, from the letter of Colossians in the Bible. Um, and um, if you've missed other talks in the series, don't worry, they all sort of stand in their, in their own. It will make sense, hopefully, just if you just catch this one. But you can catch the rest of them online. Um, the title of this series is The Way In Is The Way On. And it's this idea that, that so often the best way forward in our journey with, with Jesus is defined by the way that we began that journey. We begin our journey of following Jesus in need of his forgiveness, in awe of him, captivated by this opportunity to, to be reborn and, and have this life in Christ. And that is the way to continue this journey, placing our trust and our hopes and our identity in his hands day by day by day. Um, and so this week we're going to um, continue with another sort of sub-theme within that overall sense uh, of this letter. And I'm really excited because of the theme, the theme of today's talk. I think it presents us with an antidote to a problem that is pandemic in our culture. And that, when I was writing this, I was like, do I want to go that big? And I was like, thought about it, I was like, yes, I do, because I really think this is a big deal. Um, it's a problem that when you look at the life of Paul, the guy who wrote Colossians, though, he seemed to live a life that was unburdened by it. Um, and as you dig around in many of his letters, not least of all Colossians, I think the answer begins to come clear. So what's this problem that I'm, that I'm talking about? Well, um, I want to illustrate with a little story. Just over 10 years ago, um, I got married to my wonderful wife, Abby, and we jetted off on our honeymoon this is week in a beautiful hotel by the sea, food, um, you know, pool, spa, it was lovely. Um, and um, we got to know this couple who had arrived on the same flight transfer as us, and we spent a few evenings, you know, chatting with them. And as we talked to them, we noticed something. As they started to share, they were saying stuff like, isn't it nice the way um, they left that champagne in the room when we arrived? And, and we were like, what champagne? And then, you know, isn't it nice the way they keep on folding the towels into like heart shapes and little animals and things? And we were like, we're not getting our, we're just getting normal, I mean clean, but just folded towels. Isn't it nice the way they keep putting fresh um, flowers in our room and those little chocolates are a nice touch? And we were like, eventually, the penny dropped. Um, on the night of our arrival, these two couples had arrived, one of which was on their honeymoon. And the hotel had generously decided to bless the honeymooners with a few little extras. And Abby came to the realization, those are our towel sculptures. <laughs> and of course they weren't actually, because neither couple had paid for this special treatment. It was simply an act of grace. It was an act of generosity from the hotel. And, and we were staying in exactly the room that we had booked. If anything, it was nicer than we'd expected. And so for me, I was in this strange situation where you know, all my dreams had come true. There I was on this amazing honeymoon with the woman I'd fallen in love with. I'd had a fantastic wedding. There was a pile of presents waiting for me back home. But all of a sudden, I was, you know, distracted and grumpy because somebody else had a, a towel folded into the shape of a swan. <laughs> and I, I could and I should have been feeling, you know, contentment and gratitude. But what I instead was preoccupied by was this sense of misplaced entitlement. I think for a people like us, living in a culture that we do live in, with the wealth and the peace we experience, the many, many blessings in our life, if we're not get careful, we can take some of these things 
for granted. And an attitude of entitlement can creep into our lives. And entitlement is the problem that I'm alluding to. I think it's like a trap that we can fall into and where there's only two possible outcomes. When we feel entitled, either on one hand we don't get what we want and we feel dissatisfied, or we do get what we feel entitled to and our expectations just move on up. So I think this, this, the, the fall into the entitlement trap is like a, a slippery one-way slope. The more we get in life, the more we expect. The more we get, the more we expect. It's like a ratchet, only one way. And so, for example, the retail industry, I think they, un they understand this, they take advantage of this. Um, but they call us consumers because that's how we behave. As soon as we get one thing, the clock is ticking until we want the next thing. They tell us that we're worth it and we comply. You know, do, you, do you remember like, maybe your first mobile phone? It was like this big it, it, and, and you had a contract where you got like 500 text messages a month and you thought that was awesome. But can you imagine if the car phone warehouse tried to fob that off on you now? You'd be like, no, things have moved on. My expectations have moved on. Or when we first get a job. Do you remember sometimes when you first get a job, you're absolutely thrilled because you've got a job. But then 12 months later, you're asking, you know, where's my pay rise? Where's my promotion? When we fall into the entitlement trap, we fail to see the blessings that we have in life and just take them as granted, take them as a given. And sometimes we only realize this when they are taken away from us. Case in point example, which I'm sure we've all experienced, free carrier bags. <laughs> it's not the fact that it's 5p, is it? We can afford the 5p, it's the principle. We feel entitled to them. Or um, Wi-Fi signal. We're never grateful for it, enraged when it's not there, because it's a basic human right, Wi-Fi. It's at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy. What about, um, here's another one, not having a migraine. Everybody in this room who doesn't currently have a migraine, just take a moment to reflect how awesome it is to not have a migraine. It's wonderful. It's not just the little things as well. You know, if you have things, you know, think about some of the things that have frustrated you in life recently. I wonder how many of those frustrations stem from a, from a sort of a subconscious assumption that you were entitled to stuff that you didn't get. You know, often when we get offended or when we get frustrated by people, when we feel rejected or when we feel slighted by others, I would suggest that it's often sort of founded on this subconscious understanding that, that we were entitled to be treated in a different way. And I was thinking about this for myself, reflecting back personally on the situations where I get angry. And, um, you know, when I get angry, I'd say occasionally it's when I see others being mistreated. But the majority of times where I get angry is because somebody is treating me in a way where I feel, you know, entitled to be treated better. Perhaps they're not listening to me. Perhaps um, they aren't being fair to me. Perhaps um, they've, they've jumped in front of me in a queue. But when we stop and think about it, who says we're actually entitled to all these things in life? You know, what are we actually entitled to at the end of the day? Because I think you could argue from a, from a Christian perspective, it's a question if we're actually entitled to, to anything. The Bible says um, in Psalm 24, Verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And in the New Testament, in James, it says in chapter 1, verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from, a gov, is from above, coming down from the Father 
of heavenly nights. And I realize that for those of you who, who haven't made up your minds about, about God yet and you don't necessarily believe in God, this might be really, really controversial. But if there is a God, if there is a creator and a sustainer of the universe, it all belongs to him. So we don't actually have a right to any of it in that case. You know, even our, our spouse, our kids, our job, the, the, the air we breathe, the universe, it all belongs to him. And he gives it to us as an act of grace. And you might say, hold on, what about, you know, like, I've got basic legal rights. You know, as a UK citizen, I'm entitled to certain things. They're sort of set in stone. There's a, there's a law. But if you think about it, you know, going right back to, you know, the Magna Carta in 1215, all the way through to sort of modern human rights legislation, we can be grateful that we have a government and a monarchy who've endeavoured to legislate and establish these sort of basic human rights to which we're all entitled. But I would suggest that even those things are a gift from God. And many of the, the foundational rights upon which our laws are based are actually principles that were, that were grafted from the Bible. So whether directly or indirectly, it's all a gift from him. I want to suggest to you that we don't deserve any of it. In fact, rather the opposite. The Bible tells us that the thing that we actually deserve for the lives, for the broken lives, for the prideful and selfish lives, lives that we lead sometimes, is, is, is death, is a, is, is a death penalty from God. That's what we actually deserve. But Psalm 103 explains, and it explains it in many other places in the Bible too, that he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. He chooses instead to bless us because he is so gracious, because he's generous, undeserving as we are. And I think... Paul, the guy who wrote Colossians, he, in his life and in his writings, you see that he really understood this. And I think in this principle, he found a bit of a foothold that helped him get out of this entitlement trap, which is striking, I think, in Paul's life because he was a person who, who gave up a life of privilege. He gave up a life of, of entitlement and exchanged it for this Christian life of sufferings and persecution. Right from the outset, when Jesus first singled him out as somebody um, who he was going to use to be a messenger, Jesus sent him this warning. He said, um, go, he's my chosen instrument to carry my name in Acts chapter 9. And the warning was, I'll show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And Paul, he suffered. He was disowned by his own community for this new faith in Jesus. He faced hardship, rejection, brutality, torture, prison, perilous journeys, shipwrecks. You name it. He gave up all of the things that he'd come to feel entitled to. But listen to the way he handled that. In one of his other letters in Philippians, chapter 4, verse 12, he said, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul found his way out of the entitlement trap. How did he do it? Well, as I said, the title of this series is um, The Way In is The Way On, and I believe that he discovered the way out right at the start. Um, on the road to Damascus, this point where Jesus encountered Paul, and uh, he forgave him for his old life of hatred and anger and cruelty, and he set him free. And in that place, in that moment, that was a place where Paul recognized who Jesus was. It was a place of awe 
of gratitude and thankfulness. And that was his way into his journey, but it was also his way on. You know, the other, the other week, John um, mentioned the, 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 the song Amazing Grace um, and, and expressed um, this, the, the way it expresses this wonder that, this, that, that our God is eternal with the line, when we've been here 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, with no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And another line earlier in that song, um, it says, it sings of God's grace and it says, how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And I think that line, um, it, it, it could have been written by Paul, the way he lived his life. The grace of God just struck him in that first hour and then he just stayed there. He stayed in that place for the rest of his life. I believe that Paul's antidote to entitlement was the fact that he remained captivated, grateful, and thankful for the rest of his life. Thankfulness is the way out of the entitlement trap. Whilst entitlement could have urged him to look back at his old life and the privilege that he had and say, oh man, what have I done to deserve all this suffering? Thankfulness instead urged Paul to look at the grace of God in his life and ask the question, what have I done to deserve this? Whenever entitlement screams mine, thankfulness declares his. And wherever you go in Paul's writings, you'll find this thankfulness and this overwhelming sense of contentment that accompanied it. Um, in the letters of Romans, Philippians, Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, they all start um, with this expression of, of, of thankfulness. Similar to this one that you'll find in the letter of Colossians. In chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And there are just more examples dotted through the letter of this thankfulness coming through. Um, chapter 2, just as you receive Christ Jesus in Lord, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Continue steadfastly in prayer, chapter four, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And so I wanna spend sort of like the second chunk of this talk looking at this advice that Paul give, gave, the letter, gave the church in Colossae about being thankful and hopefully see how we can apply it to our lives. Um, but before we get too far into that, one thing that I want to be really clear about is that this type of thankfulness is not simply about just focusing on silver linings. It's not about, you know, pushing your problems to one side and just trying to ignore them and just focusing on the positive. You know, I don't know if you ever saw that film, Life of Brian, where Eric Idle sang that song, you know, always look on the bright side of life. I mean, that's going to be in your head for the rest of the day, but... The sentiment, although it's kind of well-intended, it's a bit trite, actually. And if you've ever been through um, real ongoing difficulty in your life, you'll know that it's not helpful to just be told to, to keep your chin up, to just brush the problems under the carpet. And I think that, so I don't want to focus on that. The thing that I think is more useful to impart, and the thing that I sense Paul really had a hold of, is that, is that godly thankfulness is not just about focusing on silver linings, or, or, or something that we need to try and muster up to God out of a sense of, of duty. Godly thankfulness is just a natural reaction to all that Jesus has done for us in our lives. 
And in that, in that sense, it is actually more like a gift that God has for us because thankfulness is deeply liberating. In thankfulness, we find the opposite of entitlement. We find contentment. And who here doesn't want more contentment in their life? So how can we embrace it? Well, I've got just a few questions just to run through that have emerged from me as I've read through this letter of Colossians. The first one is, is really quick. Um, question one, are you choosing to be thankful in prayer? In chapter four, Paul encouraged the church. Um, he said, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And I think um, the, the encouragement here is to actively embrace thanksgiving in your prayer life. Um, now, I know this sounds really simple, um, but the challenge in this um, is, is that word steadfast, I think. Um, you know, our life situations come and go, um, but, but, but continuing in thankfulness in a continuous steadfast way is, is challenging some days, isn't it? When you don't really feel thankful. And thankfulness doesn't come to us as naturally, does it, as, as other impulses and urges. Um, it isn't quite as instinctive. Um, for example, um, we have to teach our kids to say thank you, don't we? Um, but we never have to teach them to say mine or give me that. Now, poor old Santa, he gets far more please letters, I assume, than he gets thank yous come January. But I think our Heavenly Father could probably say something similar about the prayers of the world. They're probably far more pleases than thank yous. You know, if you're a parent, um, you'll know that rare joy um, when a child, when a, an offspring um, comes to you um, and, and unprompted um, says thank you to you. You know, and in that moment after you've sort of pinched yourself or climbed back up off the floor, you'll no doubt feel this sense of warmth in your heart. And I believe that is a, is a glimpse of how our Heavenly Father feels when we come to Him and express thanks to Him for what He's doing. And I want to suggest that we actually have far more to say thank you for than we have things to ask please for. When we pray, I believe it's always relevant for us to say thank you as an appropriate response to all that Jesus has done for us. And it may not feel like it some days, um, but I believe that you know, when it's hard, when we look at our own lives and it's hard to say thanks, we only need to look around. And I think this sort of leads into the second question that I wanna ask you today is this, are you, are you choosing to be thankful for the church? I think a, a sort of a great lesson that we can learn from the life of Paul um, was that he, was, he, was, he constantly found himself able to, to turn his eyes away from his own situation and circumstances and look towards the church. And there he found reasons to be thankful. Um, including this church in Colossae, um, to which he'd never actually been, by the way, but he knew about them, um, and he was thankful. Why was he thankful for them? Well, the answer is in, 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 in verse uh, three and four of chapter one. He writes, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. That's the, that's the rest of the church. The first thing that he was thankful for was their, was their faith. You know, a little bit later in the letter, Paul spells out this emphatic shift that had occurred in the lives of these believers. Their salvation, their reconciliation to God, all through their faith. And so when Paul looked at that church, the first thing that he was grateful for 
was not their ministries or their buildings or their leadership programs or, or, or any stuff they were doing. The first thing that he was thankful for was something that, that God had done to them and for them. He was thankful for the hearts that had been saved, the lives that had been reborn, for the faith that was present in that church. And that's why in chapter one, um, he urges them on to give thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of life. Now in Paul's case, I think it's really easy to understand why he was so thankful when he saw this faith. Because, you know, for him, a few years before, there had been no church. Um, it was just a few, you know, a handful of Jesus followers, and Paul had given up everything that he had to go around the world. He dedicated his life to sharing this message of the gospel and trying to, to get the church built. And so to him, whenever he heard good news about a church in Ephesus or Philippi or wherever, um, that, was, that was encouraging to him because it was evidence that his life was not being wasted um, and it was evidence that he wasn't going around the bend, that this message was worth sharing, people were picking it up. But I think for us, in a similar way, and especially I think for those of um, you who've been around this church for a while, who've contributed to this church over years with your time and your energy and your money, um, a bit like Paul did in this letter, I think we can reflect on what's going on in the church plants that have gone out from this church and the life in, in Bristol, Bath, Melton, Mansfield, Newcastle, Cardiff, Chester, Manchester. And we can, be, we can be thankful for all that God is doing in those churches right now. Churches where lives um, are being changed, souls are being won. Just as Paul was grateful for those churches dotted around the Mediterranean, we can be grateful for the work of God's saving grace in the lives of, of real people right now. And what's more, we can also be really grateful for this bigger, for the church, the worldwide church of which we are a part. You know, and I thought about this the other day. Um, this morning, there will have been people, brothers and sisters in the church around the world praying for you, praying for us, this morning, and we, and we, we didn't even know about it. People in, in Asia, Christians in South America, praying for the church in the UK. And we you know, don't get a chance to, to meet them and thank them, but we, thank, we can thank God for them right now. And this massive family of which we're growing, which we're part, is, is growing at an incredible rate. According to the International Bulletin of Missionary Research, there are something like half a billion more Christians around the world than there were um, in, in the year 2000, which over those sort of 16 years averages out as something like one person every second. So there's another, and another, and another, perhaps one in South America, perhaps one in Asia, perhaps one down the road in Grace Church. You know, no matter what is going on in our life, we can be thankful that we live in an age that Paul could only have dreamed of, that there is a new reason to be thankful, the very best reason to be thankful every second of every day, if we're able to take our eyes off our own situation and look at what the Lord is doing around the world. So that's the second thing, to be thankful for the church. And uh, the third question that I want to ask you is, are you thankful for this church? You know, as Paul continues in this letter, he urges um, the church in Colossae to continue to look sort of beyond themselves 
and their own problems, but, but zoom in slightly closer and look at their church, their local church family. In chapter three, and look how often he urges them to be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you're called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He's talking about doing church with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There's this reminder to be thankful whatever the weather. And, you know, like anything, I think we can all too easily slip into this entitlement trap when it comes to our own church family. Sometimes we can stop being grateful for what we're part of and end up focusing just on the things that aren't quite to our preference. Um, I remember an example of this a few years ago, just after we'd opened the youth center next door. After much sweat and hard work, we had opened this uh, center for our youth. It's an incredible facility with like a climbing wall, five-a-side pitch, this amazing PA system, just loads of brilliant facilities. And I remember a couple of weeks in, I um, remember chatting to these two, two teenagers one night um, who explained to me that they were bored. And uh, with complete sincerity, they suggested that perhaps we could, we could get some go-karts and build a go-kart track for them in the auditorium. And I remember wanting everything within me wanted to like, yell at them because I'd, I'd worked quite hard on that project myself, personally. And I would say to them, do you realize you know, how, this how members of this church have emptied their bank accounts for you to have this home? how we have worked so hard for this. Have you been to any youth groups that have a climbing wall recently? But you know, as I reflected on it, I realized that actually we just reached a clash of entitlement because unconsciously, I felt entitled to their gratitude. And conversely, they felt entitled to Alton Towers. <laughs> and I think, you know, maybe that's a, a silly example but I think often it's these little clashes of entitlement where church can get ugly. Now, I think as adults, we have to be careful not to fall into the entitlement trap when it comes to this church family. And I think we have to be wary of the warning signs. I don't know if you ever have this, but for me, you know, it can start before I've even got in the building. The car parking team, I'm like, oh no, they're parking me at the back of the car park. And then there's a massive queue for vineyard kids. I'm not going to be able to sign my kids in before, and have time to go and get a free coffee. And then I do get downstairs and I get my free coffee, but there's a very slight leak along the seam of the cup and it's going down my wrist. And then the worship starts and they're playing that song I don't like. And now to cap it all off, it's that flipping John Bodley preaching. <laughs> Worst case scenario. And I think all of those things are actually legitimate gripes. Um, as a church, uh, we do welcome, you know, what I'm not saying is never complain. We welcome your feedback. We want to do things better. So any kind of criticism except about my preaching. But the thing that I'm trying to flag up is that whilst this church isn't perfect, overall, there's so much to be thankful for God for. Just for fun. Um, yeah, there is, isn't there? And praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord. Just for fun. For 30 seconds, that's all I'm going to give you. If you are able to do this, you might not be able to because you might be new or you might you know, not be feeling like it. 
But just turn to the person next to you and just give them one reason why you're thankful for this church family. Just go for that for 30 seconds. That's great. Sorry to break it up. It's an encouraging thing to do, isn't it? Um, just one little example I want to read you out of the Trent Life magazine. Um, Hannah, who came here as a student, she said that she had been, you know, she got involved in a Trent Freshers group. She'd been trying to look for a church to join. Um, and she said, my small group became a place where I could be known, loved, and supported, and it made the transition from a small local church back home to a huge church here a lot less daunting. The last year has been tough. My dad has been battling cancer since I arrived at university. I opened up to the group one evening, and ever since, they've been praying for my whole family and checking up on me regularly. One week in particular, they clubbed together to get my shopping, plus a few extra goodies, and it made me realize that when they said they were there for me, they meant it. Isn't that brilliant? You know, whatever is going on in our lives, I think if we take our eyes off that, our own affairs, and look at what God is doing here in our local church family, we will find many, many reasons to be thankful. And I think that can transform us. Think for a second about Paul and his life. As I said, he gave up a life of privilege, of influence, of entitlement, and he swapped it for this Christian life of hardship, poverty, persecution, rejection, brutality. But I think he never lost the ability to, to weigh it all up properly, as if um, on, on a set of scales. I've got a little set of scales here that I've borrowed, just to illustrate this. So, I think what Paul did was he... I mean, I don't expect he did this consciously, but he was able to sort of like look at all the things that he'd given up and he was able, it was as if he was able to put them on, on one side of the scales, like the, you know, the influence that he'd, that he'd lost and the, the poverty that he'd exchanged for wealth and, and the hardships and the persecution. But he never lost the ability to, to sort of weigh all those things that he'd lost against what he described as the surpassing joy of knowing Christ Jesus. He said, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing joy of knowing Christ, for whose sake I've lost all things. And when he looked at that imbalance, it always tipped the scales. He always arrived in a place of thankfulness. You know, no matter what was going on in his life, he always found um, this conclusion that we read in, in chapter three of Colossians, where he says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. And perhaps more explicitly still, in another of his letters in Thessalonians, he said, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Whatever our situation, I believe that thankfulness is always actually appropriate. And I think Paul's life um, is evidence that it was the antidote to entitlement. It, it quenched it and it replaced it with this sense of contentment in his heart. And so 
The final question that I really want to ask you is, are you willing to, to dare to take this antidote yourself? <coughs> to see all situations every day as an opportunity to be thankful to your Lord and your Savior. You know, for you, um, what are the things that, 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 that you would put on the scales? You know, maybe on one hand, um, it might be things you've had to lay down to follow Jesus, frustrations, things that you're having to, to wait, wait in uncertainty as you try and pursue God, difficulties and hardships. Are you willing to place all those things on one side of the scales, but then watch them be emphatically outweighed by what Paul described as the surpassing joy of knowing Christ your Savior? See, in this exercise, it's not about trivializing these things. Um, it's not about just brushing them under the carpet. It's actually about acknowledging their full weight and how important they are. But it's also about acknowledging and trying to understand the full weight of this. For us to know that surpassing joy, for us to experience relationship with Jesus, um, we could never weigh it accurately. There's no weight in the world that could, that could really capture the true magnitude of it because for us to know Jesus, it took him who was entitled to it all. He had to strip it all off. He was entitled to the praise, the glory, and he stripped all of those things and died on a cross for us so that we could know him. And when we weigh all those things up in, in that balance, we find and arrive, I think, in a place of gratitude. And so, as we um, kind of continue our journey with Jesus, just a reminder that that was the way we found our way into this, and that defines the way forward. As we leave, my prayer is that each of us can embrace this in some way, wherever you're at in your journey with God, and know some of the freedom and the liberty and the contentment that Paul enjoyed in his life. To find ourselves like Jesus did for us, able to take off our entitlements and step forward and live a life for which we can be truly thankful. I'll just finish by borrowing a prayer from Colossians for us today. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful.